0: This month on Security Management Highlights.
1: Threat actors know this too, and so they're going after those credentials because that is their gateway to your network to come in as a legitimate user and harder for you to detect. But not every multi-factor, two-factor authentication method is um, as secure as the next.
2: Building the business model before we are required to build the business model. That right there is innovation. That's innovative thinking. That's something we wouldn't have done even 10 years ago.
3: In 2011, the FDA took a different approach and introduced the uh, concept of food defense, which essentially is meant to address the intentional uh, contamination of food product.
0: That much and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Tanya Dudley, CISSP, is a cybersecurity solution advisor for the cybersecurity firm CoFence and board member of the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, today we're going to talk about two-way authentication, SMS authentication, and specifically how it relates to phishing. Really interesting topic. Everybody kind of assumes that two-way authentication with SMS is really secure. It's effective, it blocks a lot of things, but it's technically not secure. Tell us why this is just being realized now.
1: Well, I think a lot of organizations are, you know, as we move to the cloud and we're looking for ways that we can uh, secure these environments, right? We're moving them off our on-prem data centers where we're used to being able to touch them, keep people contained. And so as we send things off and we enable SSO single sign-on so that it makes it easy for our users to still um, leverage their network credentials Threat actors know this too and so they're going after those credentials because that is their gateway to your network to come in as a legitimate user and harder for you to detect, but not every multi factor two factor authentication method is um, as secure as the next right so. There's different options that organizations should look at, especially when they're looking at protecting their critical um, privileged users. You know, Maybe they need a hard token because they're protecting that infrastructure or those those critical controls um, versus making it easy because we know that if you don't enable it in an easy method or way for a, an individual user to utilize that security control, they're gonna find ways around it and you know easily click through or, dismiss or say yes to an SMS message, that might still be malicious, right?
0: So biometrics have been around, you know, for a long time, and they've really been used effectively for several years. Why are we not incorporating more of the biometrics into these things? Is it just a social thing that people don't like their fingerprints on the net or what is it?
1: It could be a little bit of that too, but then sometimes maybe it's more complex. It's a little more difficult technically to implement. Oh. Um, you're thinking about some of these applications that we might have right in an organization that might be legacy, and so does it does it scale across all of those? Um, just another op, you know option that you have to look at when when you're determining okay, what's the best multi-factor uh, method for for our organization and for the things that we that we need it for
0: let's talk about social engineering explain to people that might not understand why this is becoming kind of a new attack vector
1: sure so we are seeing credential phishing as the number one thing that threat actors are using in what we have in our phishing defense center, where we manage um, phishing um, incident response for some of our customers, o- almost 75% of what we're seeing there is credential fish. And we see this now with organizations having to go to using o- Microsoft's O365, which is in the cloud. It's very easy for a threat actor to set up a, a website or compromise a small business that has SharePoint or um, Office Office 0365 or OneDrive in the URL, so as a user is looking at that link and looking to see, do I, is this really from somebody I trust, or it looks like it's a legit, legitimate link, mm-hmm. clicking on that link and getting that login page, which, you know, is, is looking to get their credentials. Like I said, they can use those credentials then across everything. We know individuals use the same credentials on multiple accounts. And so if I can get a credential to one account, then, you know, does that open me up for anything else that the organization might be using in the cloud that might not be using SSO?
0: Well, I just did a show about the SharePoint and security. And I always assumed that SharePoint, which came from some other technology, like such as Groove years and years ago, right? Mm Peer-to-peer secure connections. I kind of always assumed that was secure, but I guess it was technically secure from the IT Mm -hmm. side, but not socially secure. I guess that's what I'm hearing. Right.
1: Yeah, and organizations, depending on the level of licensing that they do with Microsoft, right, that they might not have the same level of protections that come with each oh. of those different license models, right, to to enable some of those security features that, you know, they might talk about like, oh, you can enable these things, you can do these things, but that puts you in a different tier of of pricing model, right? So, there's always ways that you should making be making sure that you're as you're assessing where you need to be in the organization as far as your uh, control levels, and also what does that impact in your licensing model? What do you really get for that, for what they're trying to configure at?
0: So, uh, what is uh, what is Google and Microsoft doing about this? You know, because we're all moving to the cloud; everything's a cloud, and sure. we're not going to have any control over these. Things locally like we used to. What what are they doing to try uh, trying to address this?
1: So we know. I mean, we see that um, even in my own personal Gmail account, right? I see a lot of good stuff going to the spam folder and stuff that doesn't even show up for an individual. And we know that they are, you know, they are looking at this threat as well and trying to do what they can. But just as they are trying to tune URLs, assess websites, threat actors are also assessing what can still bypass those, right? So it's a it's a cat and mouse game, right? As As they up their game on their security controls, so do the threat actors in trying to get around those um, controls as well as getting around those email gateways that um, organizations put in place to try and block a lot of that stuff. And it does do a good majority of blocking, but there's still that potential of the threat actor learning to get around that setting up a a multiple page layer that have it having the individual click through that looks legitimate to then ultimately scrape those credentials, you know, because they put those controls in place to assess that first step. And if that first step looks good, then then the user can um, get through that first layer and then still potentially sacrifice their their credentials.
0: Give me your best advice for our listeners on how we can be more careful in this area. What should we, what should the average person do that maybe not be tech savvy? What can they do to, to better protect themselves?
1: So it, it always comes down to, was I really expecting this, right? Do I really need to interact with this person? And still at the end of the day, pick up the phone and ask them or send them an off channel Email, right? A direct message without replying to that message really is still assessing who did the message come from, look at the links, the attachment, um, is it legitimate, is it something I really am expecting? That always comes down to it. Enabling multi factor on any account that you can still still is a good um, methodology, right? Because threat actors are still going after these credentials because it's still easy, right? And they're going to continue to do that. And yes, even though um, this past summer when we saw a threat, security researchers create new tools to try and um, bypass the, the 2FA. They may be tooling that themselves in the background so that once it's not as easy and organizations have are more proliferated around um, multi-factor, um, that they can then maybe leverage these tools in the future. So uh, it's, it's, still, it's still a good thing to, to enable that multi-factor where you can.
0: My guest has been Tanya Dudley, CISSP, Security Solution Advisor for the cybersecurity firm CoFence and board member of the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you. Doug Powell, PSP, is the Security Project Manager of Security and Emergency Management at BC Hydro in British Columbia, Canada. He has more than 35 years experience in utility security and he is Vice Chair of the ASIS International Utilities Security Council. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend.
2: Thank you, Chuck. I'm happy to be here.
0: Today, we're going to talk about adaptable innovation and public utilities. Doug, tell us about this.
2: Oh, thanks, Chuck. So, you know, maybe to start, I'll just uh, talk about innovation and why that's important. And, and adaptability is, I think, a key outcome of innovation. But uh, I think security, at least in my career, has about the last 35 years. Um, we've come out of the sort of back room. And security has become a really key part of what uh, an organization does. We no longer respond as our primary uh, contribution to the business. We're sitting at the boardroom uh, level tables. We're sitting um, with the executive. We have uh, CSOs, chief security officers, and chief information security officers mm-hmm. who are integral to the, the functioning of the business and, and you know the ongoing risk management for the business. And so... We have it we've had to adapt as an industry. We've had to adapt as professionals and have the ability to you know respond to uh, organizational problems uh, to help guide the business as opposed to simply responding to things that have happened that need cleanup or need need investigation. So this whole discussion for me uh, came as a, a, an outcome of some planning that my utility was doing where we were simply asked to think about the future and think about things like climate change and think about things like world economy and world politics. Um, And what does that mean in terms of planning security and remaining uh, effective and and, uh, building the business model before we are required to build the business model? That right there is innovation, that's innovative thinking. That's something we wouldn't have done even 10 years ago. There are four key areas that I identified that I believe uh, are necessary to keep a security leader and a security group vibrant and adaptive and innovative, the, the root of that, the very base uh, level of that, is developing the security program. So what do I mean by security program? Security program considers everything that a security leader and the security group is required to do or think about or act on. At the very root of that is the governance model. If we don't have a good governance model, we don't know where our authority comes from, we don't know what policies guide us and and direct us, we don't know how we relate to the rest of the company, we don't understand what standards we're abiding by. We don't even understand within our own organization what the communication pathways are uh, in terms of reporting level, responsibility, accountability. So within the, the security program, understanding who you are, what you do, what your authority is, and all of the things that you have to be concerned about as a security manager or a security professional, um, that gives you the basis and understanding for how you are going to proceed into the future. It, it gives you the guidance or the understanding about where you must remain innovative where you must remain aware, where you must remain connected. And it, it gives you the, the sort of baseline for how you're going to operate far into the future. So that's number one, that's, that's the big chestnut for me. Number two kind of begs on that. Number two is more about how do I act within my, within my organization? How do I connect? Where am I connected? Um, and wheres you know where's my seat of influence? And in order for the security professional of the future to have uh, any uh, chance or any opportunity of being relevant, they have to have that business acumen layer. And what I mean by that is they have to be able to speak about the business in the same language and with the same degree of relevance, as every other uh, senior manager or senior executive in the company. And in order for the security group to have the relevance it needs to sit at that executive table and talk about risk and help help the CEO and the other executives make those kinds of business decisions, the security professional of the future has got to have the exact same level of understanding and business awareness and acumen to be deemed relevant so that's the second layer for me the third one um, is innovation on the technology side and and you know remaining remaining aware remaining current uh in terms of you know where the world is going uh what technology is is in flight and how to use that, that technology and adapt it um you know i think that as i said before um nothing lives in isolation anymore in our world and in order for Uh, The security group, a security manager, to really uh, make use of future technology, they've got to be sitting on that leading-edge curve like like everybody else. And I think that within our industry, a security industry, um, technology has come a long way. I mean, you know, what we used to admire in, in the computer world has now really been applied in full and is becoming somewhat innovative in terms of camera technologies and access technologies and even robotics and uh, artificial intelligence. But I think the adaptation has got to go further, and I think the future is that technology will rule in in many respects within the security environment, just like it does in every other aspect of our lives. Smart grid um, is the single biggest cause of, of the cybersecurity concerns that we have today within the utility sector. If it weren't for the great level of of, uh, interconnectedness, if it wasn't for the degree of um, technology applications within the grid, we wouldn't have this outstanding concern that we have about being hacked by a a nation state or, you know, by criminals, and um, we wouldn't be concerned about the kinds of things that we are regulated to deal with today. The fourth one, Chuck, is um, really about the human connectivity, it's about um, creating networks of people um, who have more experience than us in some areas who maybe have uh, more knowledge or uh, databases that we can make use of about uh, people who uh, follow trends that we can make use of or, or just understanding what's going on in other parts of the country or other parts of the world that we can make use of. And it's about creating a situational awareness where when, uh, before things happen, before we are called to deal with something, we can see it coming in the horizon. We're aware of it. We understand it at an operational level that if it does impact us, it's planned to, to you know, move toward it or move through it or to deal with it. And that, that situational awareness comes through being connected with the industry it comes through being connected with information and uh, education. It comes through being organized with like-minded professionals, uh, just the same way that ASIS International, for example, keeps us connected and uh, provides us opportunity to interact. It comes through programs with our local uh, police agencies, um, our national uh, energy agencies, and, and uh, Utilities organizations, in my, in my case, uh, it comes through interactions with the intelligence community, and they have to be meaningful. And I'm talking about full-time connectivity, and we're doing exactly what I said at the top of the interview, which is thinking about what's coming at us. What happens in my part of the world, and therefore, what impacts my utility as things happen um, that are more or less out of our control? Rather than being a spectator or rather than being a passenger on the bus that is kind of moving through these issues uh, and, and you know we're looking out the window and um, being amazed by them, we are looking to be ahead of them, to see them come in and to be uh, ready to respond in, in effect. And that, that level of situational awareness is really key in terms of how we as security professionals do our job. So those are the four big ones that I see, Jack.
0: Doug, I'm moving to Canada as soon as possible, and I want to know what grid your company is on, okay? Doug Powell, CPP, so glad to speak with you. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. I really appreciate it, my friend.
2: My great pleasure, Chuck. Thank you very much.
0: Frank Pichota, CSC, a Certified Security Consultant, is President of Business Protection Specialists, Inc. He's also the Vice Chair of the ASIS Council for Food Defense and Agriculture Security. Welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you?
3: I'm fine, sir. How are you?
0: Good. Today, we're going to talk about food defense versus food safety. I kind of assume they're the same thing, but they're not. And we're going to discuss insider threat in that industry. So just give us an overview.
3: Sure. Um, A couple things there. We can talk about quickly the difference between food safety and food defense. Um, The food production industry is very experienced and uh, has a lot of depth and experience with uh, food safety issues, which is the the accidental contamination of food product uh, during the production process. So, for instance, uh, you know, uh, metal shavings from a machine that malfunctions or plastic, uh, that, that you know, broken plastic that might get into the product accidentally. Um, these are the things that companies have been very good about uh, dealing with from the food safety perspective, again, being accidental. In 2011, the FDA took a different approach and introduced the uh, concept of food defense, which essentially is meant to address the intentional uh, contamination of food product, which could be you know done for a variety of reasons, but the FDA's focus is uh, an act of terrorism um, by an insider primarily um, who would seek to cause wide-scale public health impact. So that in, in 2011 was really the first introduction of the intentional uh, adulteration food defense concept.
0: Now, it covers regulated facilities, requires them to prepare a security plan. Am I hearing that not all facilities are covered?
3: Well, at and it's uh, they've they've really scaled the um, uh, regulation uh, based upon company size. There are some exclusions in the regulation. For instance, if you're a producer of alcoholic beverages, for instance, you, you may not be regulated. So there are some uh, some exceptions, but they've stratified it by uh, the largest of companies. Um, and then they go to the midsize companies and the smaller companies. And they, they have this uh, staged implementation over a three-year period starting in 2019, then the midsize having to be compliant by 2020 and the uh, Smaller companies have until 2021 to be compliant.
0: Now, does the regulation provide a solution for the defense? or Are they hitting the mark on that?
3: Well, um, it's helpful. Um, I'll say that. But um, I, I think that I, I would have um, some concerns. My, my experience in, in dealing with our food, um, food clients is that they set their threshold um, for security and uh, protection uh, against intentional contamination, at a much lower threshold than than what the FDA sets. For instance, um, you know the FDA is is talking about a wide scale public health impact and you know a lot of injuries or deaths. And and the companies we're dealing with don't want one person uh, to, to be hurt or or killed as a result of an active, uh, product contamination. So that uh, that becomes a much more difficult objective to meet than. And, uh, preventing uh, wide-scale public health impacts. So that's point number one. Um, point number two would be, uh, as it relates to what the FDA requires companies to look at in their production process, they they essentially have named uh, four uh, areas in, in the production process Uh, process that they feel would be most uh, likely to be subject to an act of intentional adulteration that would cause wide-scale public health impact. A couple examples I would give there would be uh, bulk liquid receiving and bulk liquid storage. Uh, They talk about mixing and secondary ingredients, for instance. And, and those are logical um, places where it would be easy to introduce a contaminant and that would be you know, thoroughly mixed in with, with the product. So that, that makes sense. One, one point that, that seems to be absent um, to me is when the food in production is moving, um, I call it conveyance. It's, it's moving from point A to point B for a, a different processing step, and that, that product is not in a tamper uh, evident container. Um, that, that's not covered by the, the FDA regulation. And I, you know, I think that's, that, that would be a concern. Um, and I would give you an example of um, where in, in Japan a contract – um, employee sprayed insecticide <laughs> over a product as it was moving through this conveyance process, and that that organization could have been fully compliant with the FDA's IA rule, and that that incident would would not have been prevented. There would have been no effort um, to to put any mitigation strategies in, in place under the you know the FDA's rule. So I think it's good, but um, it certainly companies should not fall asleep and and feel like. Um, they're gonna be completely covered if they're i a compliant, and it just isn't gonna be the case. There's a lot of other things that have to be dealt with. Well, on the, on uh, but what I do like, um, excuse me, what i uh, what I do like certainly is their uh, their focus on the insider threat because that that's a big deal in in the food production industry.
0: So let's talk about that. Are the insider threats any different than our typical profiles in uh, in other industries?
3: Um, so what i what I've done to wrap my head around that, is I've I've created um, a cross-comparison to the way that we look at uh, workplace violence offenders, and you know, if if, if you're sophisticated in, in the area of workplace violence, you you understand that there's um, you know typically four, but really five different different types of workplace violence offenders. So you've got a type one, which is a person that has no legitimate reason for being on that that organization's property and comes onto that property to, to commit a crime. Uh, you have type two offenders who are persons receiving service. It's it's kind of a big deal in healthcare. It really would be like the patients and family members who are there receiving service and who become violent for one reason or another. Type three would be your current or former employees. Type four would be um, persons that may or may not have a legitimate reason um, to, to be on the company property but have a relationship. Or, or some kind of romantic obsession. So that could be a domestic violence incident that impacts the the workplace. And then something that's emerged um, being a type five, which would be a, an act of violence that's um, you know motivated by um, someone for ideological reasons. And when you look at the FDA regulation, their focus is on the ideological, um, uh, the ideological offender, if you will, that insider that's going to contaminate for terrorist purposes. But the reality is when you break down the incidents that are occurring, it's, it's really more your current or former uh, employees that are doing it for reasons that are way different than um, what what the FDA is looking at. And there's a, a common thread that runs through that When um, when you look at the incidents that are on record in, in like the last two or three years. You can you can see that it was a type three current employee that had some kind of a dispute in, in the workplace. And that's the common thread that runs through all these uh, these incidents. And it could be that they have a dispute against the company. They might have a dispute with their supervisor. They may have a dispute with a coworker. And these are the motivations that are causing them to um, act out and contaminate product for, for one reason or another. and. Um, so when you're looking at the the insider threat and building an insider threat program, you really have to set up some tripwires that that deal with um, monitoring for intercompany disputes and taking into account: do we need to change a person's role? Are they working in a highly sensitive area? Do we need to increase supervision? There's all sorts of things, and I'm not, you know, going to sit here and say I'm an expert at you know developing and implementing an insider threat. Um, detection program, but it's something that I see is absolutely um, vital to um, food defense and for for companies that are in food production. So um, as I serve on the ASIS uh, Food Defense and Agricultural Security Council, we are working hard as a council to um, take some of the best practices um, in in terms of insider threat detection and try and apply those and create some work products that would help companies to apply those uh, lessons learned in food production.
0: I'm hearing good news that the industry has a very low threshold of tolerance for anything like this. So if somebody drops a, you know, his hairnet falls off, they're on it, right? I mean, that's how seriously they take the food safety part of the industry, which contributes to food per- protection, right? Obviously, why don't we yeah. hear more about some of these insider threats? Is it is it because it uh, doesn't meet the federal regulation of a you know of a wide health issue? There's brand reputation they have to protect. I, there's a lot of moving parts here that would prevent the public from knowing about some of this stuff.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I Obviously, it is um, not a surprise that if a company doesn't have to disclose um, an incident, they wouldn't want to you know, disclose an incident. So if it doesn't rise to the level of having to go through protocols for recall, um, I think that companies are highly motivated to protect their brand and, and not have that information in the public domain. So that, that right there would suggest to me that you could have things that are occurring that are, you know, perhaps underreported if it doesn't, you know, require a, a recall. Um, but, um, you know, there are there are a number of incidents that, that have made, you know, made the news and I monitored this stuff daily. You could probably name off 10, you know, fairly substantial incidents that have occurred in the last few years. And um, we have uh, presented on some of that and reported on some of that in some of the publications in Security Management Magazine. Um, so we're, we are tracking and monitoring those, and I'm always interested in what, who's the offender, what type of offender, and what was their motivation, because I think there's a lot of learnings that can be taken away from that.
0: Frank Boshota, CSC Certified Security Consultant, President of Business Protection Specialists, Inc. Mr. Frank, thanks for coming on the show. Very, very interesting. And let's have you on again, because this is a subject we need to track.
3: Thank you, sir. My pleasure.